Hi folks, Joni here. And from my Jewish household to yours, happy Hanukkah. It's the festival of lights, but more than that, the eight-day celebration reminds us of the importance of dedication to our ideals, to our family, and to ourselves. Back in 2020, we sat down with the mensch of Charlotte music, that is to say, Cy Khan, who dedicated time to share some beautiful memories and music moments with us. It was one of my favorite interviews. So I hope you enjoyed today's rebroadcast conversation and I hope you stay safe and stay inspired. Part of what I learned working in the Southern Civil Rights Movement in Forest City, Arkansas, was the power of song and that people singing together is an empowering act. I'm Joni Deutsch, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Amplifier, the music podcast where we shine a light on the artist who calls Charlotte home. Because Charlotte is more than just a banking city or a football city. So every other Thursday on this podcast, we're going to explore the people, places, and things that help define the Queen City's crown sound. And today, we'll hear from Cy Khan, the community organizer and civil rights activist, who's also been called a folk music icon. That's coming up on Amplifier. Amplifier. And then the beat will drop. Amplifier. 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 Can you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Jody, it is such a pleasure to be interviewed by an award-winning journalist right here in my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. I've lived here for 40 years. And I expect to be here for the next 40, despite being 76 years old. What I do is not all that easy to explain, because there are multiple facets to it. I am, by profession, a civil rights union and community organizer. I've been doing this for 55 years. But I am also a performing and recording musician and... I have another career in musical theater. So, you know, a busy life. And Sai, thank you for joining us for this socially distanced, remote interview around Labor Day, I should say. Now, for most people, Labor Day means two things. A day off work and a chance to say goodbye to the summer with barbecues and parties and the like. But Labor Day is a day set aside to pay tribute to labor's role in advancing civil liberties, social justice, and economic equality for all. And Sai, the labor movement has held a special place in your life in musical work. As you mentioned, for the past 55 years, you've been working as a professional civil rights, labor, and community organizer, and folk musician. You've been intimately involved in so many of the most important progressive struggles of the past 50 years, civil rights movement, the Harlan County Miners' Strike, and a number of your songs, stemming all the way back to the mid-70s, focus on this work and have become anthems for laborers, protesters, and singer-songwriters around the world. I'm tired of working for nothing And that that's ready to fall If we can't leave this coal without danger we ain't gonna 
And the wind blows hard up the holler Through the trees with a whistling sound But the sun's gonna shine in this old mine Ain't no one can turn us around Roseanne Cash, the award-winning musician and daughter of the legendary Johnny Cash, she had this to say about your work's eye. If the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, then Cy Khan has devoted his life to riding that arc. His powerful impulse to service, combined with deep compassion, is a force of nature. I put Cy in the same category as Woody Guthrie, as Pete Seeger, as my dad, who shared his righteous sense of humanity and his love of the meek. Powerful words to describe your work in music and life. And today on the podcast, I do want to talk about that passion for history and social justice. And we'll talk about your songs. But first, I want to hear the personal stories behind them. So, Sai, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how it led you to this line of musical work. It's a great question. And and I, I love thinking about my upbringing because it reminds me of my mom, my dad, who are long gone, sadly. You know, I think of them every day of my life, and, and I still miss them, even though it's been a long time. But they clearly set me on this path. They were humane people. Mom was an artist, and a very fine one, amateur, but worked in oils, in aquatints, a very, very fine drawing line. And she loved that more than anything else. Pop was a rabbi, and he was the Hillel rabbi, Hillel being the organization for Jewish students on campuses, like, like the Newman Club for Catholics. And Pop loved working with students, but both of them loved justice, not in the abstract, but in a very, very real sense. So my favorite story is there was a point in the history of Big Ten football when the previously segregated all-white football teams began to recruit African-American players. And I think it's a complex story because I'm not convinced that they wanted to integrate, but speaking for Penn State, they did not want to lose to Michigan State. So a town which had been virtually all white, State College, Pennsylvania, which is where Penn State is located, suddenly had African-Americans coming to live there on the campus. It was a small town in those days, maybe 6,000 students, 6,000 people in the actual town. And we had two barber shops, each with two seats. And the barbers said, we're not prejudiced, but we don't know how to cut that kind of hair. Therefore, we will not cut it. Pop went to the other ministers, the other clergy, and organized a picket line for the two barber shops. Mom found a neighbor who could drive her to Tyrone, which was a paper mill town about 30 miles away, but a full hour going across the Pennsylvania mountains, walked into a black barber shop, explained the situation to the barber and said, if you will come to State College every two weeks, I'll set up a chair in my kitchen and you can cut the hair for these football players. Now, I love this story, Jody, because there are many different ways to live a life that's committed to social justice. 
And, and social justice to me is just treating everybody the way you want to be treated, creating opportunity. It's nothing radical. It's just common sense and good manners. So I believe that both mom and pop were right in what they did, but they were complementary. So that was a presence in our house. We were also more than aware of the Holocaust. My, my folks lost some 40 members of their families who were murdered in the Holocaust. Mom knew many of them because they had come to this country and gone back. And I think they had a an unspoken to me and my sister understanding that if it can happen to anyone in this country, specifically at that time, African-Americans, that it could happen to us as Jews. Now, I want to be clear. In this country, at this time, we as Jews have nothing like the level of risk that African-Americans have or that LGBTQ and trans people have. But we are on that list. So for me, people say, you know, it's wonderful that you sacrifice your life for others. And I say, no, no, I've done what I've done for myself. And it's just good luck that I'm fighting on somebody else's barricade and not on my own. I remember 1965 in a country church singing freedom songs. Good people struggling to survive, asking why must this take so long? Late this evening I can hear through my window high above young marchers singing back the fear against the chill of a dream gone wrong. They bring us courage, hope, and love, for freedom is a constant song. Freedom is a constant song. Fifty years since I first learned these songs of longing to be free, past all the bridges that we've burned, they hearten and encourage me. Late this evening I can hear through my window high above young marchers singing back the fear against the chill of a dream gone wrong. They bring us courage, hope, and love, for freedom is a constant song. Freedom is a constant song. Sai, you began your organizing career in 1965 in Arkansas as a volunteer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, more popularly known as SNCC, uh, the student wing of the Southern Civil Rights Movement. Tell us more about your experience working with SNCC and what the climate was like at the time for the country. Ironic to look back at 1965, the year that I joined SNCC, from the perspective of 2020. And it's really a case of how much has changed and how much has not changed. In a, in a strange way, with the killings of African-American, primarily men, but also women, by police and by right-wing nationalists, it definitely brings me back emotionally to the stark racism, the dominance of the Klan and rural areas of the South that I found in 1965. I worked in Forest City, Arkansas. It has two R's in it. It's named after the Confederate 
cavalry leader General Nathan Bedford Forrest, a slave owner, a slave trader, and the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. I lived in an abandoned funeral home along with many other civil rights leaders and workers, and we fixed it up. And, you know, at night, African-American veterans of World War II and of Korea would sleep on the roof with, with rifles. We were nonviolent, but they were determined not to let us get hurt. But despite the fear, despite the anxiety, it was an exhilarating time. And that's really when I discovered what I wanted to do in this life and perhaps what I was meant to do in this life. And I loved being with people when they discovered their voices, when they began to overcome fear, when they realized that they could stand up together and that by doing so, they could make change. It's a beautiful thing to watch and to contribute to. And I still feel that way. Part of what I learned working in the Southern Civil Rights Movement in Forest City, Arkansas, was the power of song. And that people singing together is an empowering act. It helps you overcome fear. It helps you discover a sense of common purpose. Those songs gave shape and heart and momentum to the Civil Rights Movement. All along the bars and hills of Forest City Talking to the people where they are I think it's time for us to get together There's no need to be afraid, says Mervyn Barr Shooting pole to supplement the pension From injuries he got in the Marines And when he talk, you couldn't tell but listen He was the gentlest man I've ever seen Following 1965, you continued your work in Kentucky at a strike by the United Mine Workers of America in bloody Harlan County in Kentucky. And you also worked in rural Georgia, where you coached the first racially integrated Little League team in that part of the state. Tell us a little bit more about the travel and the different projects and initiatives that you worked with along the way. You know, there are so many campaigns that it's hard to summarize, but I'll, I'll choose just one very short one where the music became a part of the work that I do. In 1972, I was working for the United Mine Workers of America, as you mentioned, on what was known as the Brookside Strike in Harlan County, Kentucky, bloody Harlan, as you remembered. And I was living in North Georgia, commuting to Eastern Kentucky, and I got a call from the Southern Director of the Textile Workers Union saying, we just got news that a mill in Aragon, Georgia, has closed. We don't have anybody we can send there. Would you mind going over for a couple of days until we can get somebody else there? So I went to Aragon, Georgia, and 
I did what organizers do in a situation like that. You don't come with answers. You don't say, here's what you need to do. You say, what what just happened? What, why do you think it happened? Who do you think made it happen? What are your feelings about it? Do you think there's anything that could be done? Would you be willing to help? So those are the kinds of questions that you ask people because I believe that that in any community, for any issue that is of importance, the people actually know the answer to what needs to be done, but they don't know it individually. It's like a puzzle. Everybody has a piece, and the organizer works with them to put it all together and figure out what to do. Well, it turned out that there wasn't a whole lot to be done there. But many moments stood out for me. One in particular, I was sitting on the porch, and it was directly opposite the mill and absolutely opposite what's known as the weave room, where the looms are. That's the loudest part of a mill. In a mill town, you can always tell the weavers, even when they're in the hardware store, because they're all hard of hearing. The noise is so loud that it destroys their hearing. And and this one fellow, he hadn't been a weaver, but he had lived opposite the weave room, and he said, you know, at, at night, you couldn't even have a decent conversation with your own spouse, he said wife, on the front porch of your house. He said, and to tell you the truth, I used to cuss this mill. And I used to say, I just wish this mill would stop so that one night I could have a decent conversation with my own wife on the front porch of my own house without having to shout to be heard. He said, you know, now that they really shut down the mill, it's so quiet, I can't even sleep anymore. Driving home to North Georgia, Aragon is on the Alabama border, so it was about two hours from where I lived, and I stopped to get a cheeseburger. And I, and I wrote down his story on a napkin, and I took the words that he said and put them almost word for word into the song. It says, you know, it's so quiet, I can't sleep. And that became a song called Aragon Mill. At the east end of town, at the foot of the hill, there's a chimney so tall that says Aragon Mill. But there's no smoke at all coming out of the stack. Cause a mill has pulled out and it ain't coming back. Now I'm too old to change and I'm too young to die. And there's no place to go for my old man and I. There's no children at all in the narrow empty streets Now the looms have all gone, it's so quiet I can't sleep And the only tune I hear is the sound of the wind As it blows through the town, weave and spin, weave and spin
shut down It's the only life I know Tell me where will I go Tell me where will I go And the only tune I hear Is the sound of the wind As it blows through the town Weave and spin, weave and spin You know, at the time, Jody, I thought, well, I don't really understand why this mill closed, but it's really, you know, just unfortunate for everybody that works there. What I now know, looking back, it's, it was the first blast of a wind that blew across the south from Alabama to Virginia and carried away a million good jobs in the textile mills. In that year, that was 1972, there were a million textile workers in the United States, three quarters of a million of them in North and South Carolina. And the mills built the middle class. You know, so many of the people here in Charlotte, when you say, so what does your grandparents do? And I'm talking about political leaders, business owners, you know, doctors, physical therapists, people who, you know, have good professions, good lives. They say, well, my grandma worked in the mill. And you scratch the surface of Charlotte, the history of the mills is right behind it. And now there's hardly a mill left in the South. They've all gone to third world countries where people often have to work behind barbed wire, where there's no health and safety protection, where it's absolutely impossible to join a union, and where people work 12, 14 hours a day, but the machines that they are working on came out of the towns that surround Charlotte, Kannapolis, Mount Holly, um, Lowell, Sacco, all those little villages that were once mill villages, but that aren't anymore. Alabama ain't no Jubilee Carolina moon don't shine on me Coming up, Cy Khan on his folk music inspirations and his new initiative to help you folk the vote in 2020. That's right after this break on Amplifier. Sai, I mentioned at the start of the interview that Roseanne Cash sees your music akin to that of Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, prominent songwriters who contributed socially and politically aware music to the folk revival movement in the 1960s. What was it that drew you to this style of music that you made and that you still make today? You know, I didn't grow up on folk music. I grew up on 50s rock and roll, you know, something I still appreciate. But when I was 15 years old, our English teacher assigned us to write a paper based on research at the Library of Congress. I was walking down the halls, which looked like any government building in the 1950s, with little Bakelite signs sticking out from the wall. And one of the signs said, archive of folk music. I walked in, I said, 
you guys have any Joan Baez? And they, they were very kind. They said, no, that's not actually what we do. We're the National Center for Field Recordings of Traditional Music. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? They said, well, you know, every community, every language group, every geography in the United States has a set of folk traditions, has a folk life. There's songs, there's stories, there are dances. Our job as an agency of the federal government is to preserve all of this because in a changing world, so often, so much of it is lost. So we have literally hundreds of thousands of recordings of songs, every Native American language, every immigrant language, all kinds of styles. And we, our job is to preserve and protect it for the future. I said, so wow, that sounds cool. What does this kind of music sound like? And they said, well, you could listen for yourself. So they had listening booths. And, you know, you know like, like you sometimes saw in record stores when there were record stores. So they handed me an LP, a long playing record, 12 inches wide, red translucent plastic. You could see through it. I mean, you could see light through it. You couldn't actually see anything. And I went into the listening booth and I put on the headphones and I dropped the needle on the album and it was like I heard a world I didn't even know existed of, of banjos, of fiddles, of spoons, of blues, of gospel songs, of ballads. I had no idea that world was out there. And I took one of the albums home. I paid for it, probably 99 cents. And I was so excited. And my classically trained opera-loving parents said, wow, you're really excited. What is it? I said, I have discovered the most wonderful music in the entire world. I'm 15 years old. They said, well, let us hear this. So we put the album on, and I still remember the look of pain on their faces. <laughs> but they were good parents, and they said, well, you know, we're so glad you find, found something that means something to you. And Joni, from that point on, I was an absolutely fanatical traditional music, traditional folk music fan, a fan. I, mean, I stress that. I was not writing songs. I wasn't playing instruments. I, I, I had asked for a guitar for my bar mitzvah. Uh, it was made of plywood, um, probably the worst instrument I've ever encountered, but I played it for 15 years. And um, I would go to fiddler's conventions and sleep in my car and stay up all night and listen. So that music, I think, just like Laurie Lewis says, you don't choose whom you love, love chooses you. I, I didn't choose folk music, it chose me. It's not that I don't love other kinds of music. I mean, I love many, many different kinds of music. But this is the one where I later discovered that I could turn the stories that I heard in mill towns and in coal mining towns, uh, on farms, I could turn those stories into songs. One time someone, and I don't remember who it was, said to me, you know, if you had only been a full-time musician instead of all this organizing stuff, think how many more songs you might have written. Now, I will say, usually it takes me two days before I think of the right answer. But on that day, without even thinking, I said, yes, maybe. But what would those songs have been about? So certainly many of my songs, just like Aragon Mill, 
I would. I didn't imagine it. I saw it. I heard it. To be a responsible musician is to resist self-censorship. You know, I think it's our responsibility as musicians to write the whole story of life, not to leave parts out, not to leave the good parts out and not to leave the hard parts out. Sai, in your book, Creative Community Organizing, a guide for rabble-rousers, activists, and quiet lovers of justice, you share some words of wisdom for the next generation on how to make the world a more just and more humane place. Ben Cohen, the co-founder of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, gave the book a rave review, saying, Sai writes with a calm passion. This book is a kind, caring friend and mentor. For we who are engaged with the struggle to help our country live up to the promise of what America was meant to be. And in the book, you write this. Laughter really is therapeutic, and hope does heal. Be cheerful in the face of adversity and help others feel that way. Now, that quote may seem daunting, given what happened in 2020. For many, 2020 has been a dark, unyielding year. As we look to a new season, a new year, what would you say to listeners and creatives out there about finding light in seemingly the darkest of times? So, Joni, that's the key question. But I think there's actually a fairly simple answer, which is watch the young people because they are hopeful, they are determined, they are working for a very different world from the one that I grew up in. You know, earlier in the interview, I quoted a song I wrote two or three weeks ago. What happened is, you know, here in Charlotte, most of the marches, starting with George Floyd's tragic murder, Most of the marches have been uptown. And I have to explain to my friends who don't live in Charlotte that uptown is our downtown. I know. I mean, it's a tough sell, but I do my best. One night, maybe two or three weeks after the marches started, Elizabeth was out on our fifth floor balcony and a march came down Kettleworth Avenue. Whether it was the main march, whether it was another march, I don't know. And I wasn't out there on the balcony with her, but, you know, as a songwriter, we do borrow other people's experiences. And I was so moved, so moved, that these young, and I mean young, I mean pre-teenagers and teenagers, that these young people were recreating the Southern Civil Rights Movement, except this time it was not primarily African Americans, although substantially and led by African Americans, but so many young white people, so many young Asian people, so many young African American people were really throwing not their bodies against the barricades, but their hopes, their dreams against the barricades that hold us all back. And I did what I do in moments of deep emotion. I wrote a song. So now let me answer that question with the last verse, which says, I am so grateful that tonight 
I saw these marchers come again. No work to do except what's right. No words to say except amen. I think that it's almost always the youngest among us who lead the way. I can't remember which testament it's in that says a little child shall lead them. Well, make that teenagers, and I think we've got something that's actually the reality of life. And of course there's anger, of course there's rage, of course there's a lack of faith in the ability of this country to deliver on its promises. But the young people of Charlotte, the young people of North Carolina, of the United States, of the world, are leading a fight. Look at the news from virtually every country around the world, whether it's Belarus, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's right here in Mecklenburg County. They're young. They are the hope of the future, and we need to support them. We need to believe them. We need to follow them. So I think that's where you find hope. Just like I, I say in the song, you know, late this evening I can hear from my window high above young marchers singing back the fear against the chill of a dream gone wrong. They bring us hope and love for freedom is a constant song. PsyCon's latest full-length release is titled Bristol Bay, available on PsyCon.com and wherever fine music is streamed and sold. Amplifier is a production of WFAE. This episode is written and produced by me, Joni Deutsch. Our editor is Catherine Welch. Our theme music is provided by Dirty Art Club. Share your favorite Charlotte music recommendations with me on social media. You can tag and follow me. I'm at a change of tune. Amplifier features a new musical episode every other Thursday. So make sure to subscribe to the Amplifier podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find podcasts. And if you're listening on NPR One, make sure to give us a heart or a favorite. Check out the playlist and show notes for today's episode, along with a Charlotte music map and a way for you to submit your music on our website, wfae.org slash amplifier. Until next time, I'm Joni Deutsch. Thanks for listening.